Welcome to episode 11 of Sticky Big. Adam Stone is the founder of Speedlancer, a freelancing platform that connects businesses with freelancers in a range of fields and professions. Adam shared some great insights on raising capital and was very open with the highs and lows that come along with it. Welcome to Sticky Beak, Adam. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. I understand you have escaped Melbourne lockdown and you're in Brisbane currently. Yeah, I mean, over the last few years, I've probably lived in like five different cities, somewhat intentionally or unintentionally. I was actually in Brisbane a few years ago, so it's nice to be back. Yeah. But I normally live in Los Angeles, so it's been a crazy, wild year. <laughs> How long did you spend in LA? uh that trip to the us was a year um that was supposed to be a a relocation but um i don't know what relocation means anymore something always comes up (laughs) (laughs) temporary relocation maybe exactly well that's life isn't it (laughs) everything's temporary (laughs) constant change so tell me about where you grew up uh adam was it sounds like you're moving around a lot these days. Did you move around a lot as a kid or did you stay, grow up mainly in one place? Yeah, I grew up mainly in, well, grew up in Melbourne until I was nine and we moved to Chicago as a family and I was there till 14, so about four and a half years. Uh, and then we moved back to Melbourne. Uh, when I was 19, I got into the 500 Startups Accelerator. Uh, so then I moved over to San Francisco had a visa rejected after six months, had to turn down some investment because I couldn't sign the check. Uh, And then I was in Australia for probably a year, traveled for a year, went to Brisbane, back to Melbourne, more travel, (laughs) back to Melbourne and then LA and now back in Brizzy. Gotcha. So the next question is usually what did your education look like? But it sounds like you had the startup opportunity straight after. So did you finish school, finish high school? Yeah. So I did kind of a normal education, got a uni degree, but I've always been an entrepreneur. I started when I was like 11 years old. Um, and so I was running my first like real business, quote unquote, um, when I was 14. I had my first employee when I was 15 it's actually his 10th year anniversary now he's still um, working for this you. month yeah he is perry oh, um and uh yeah but i was able to run that business in high school and then uni started speed lancer first year uni um ended up not finishing my law degree but somehow finished a commerce degree despite moving around that's, that's <laughs> impressive so what was the business that you had when you were 15 where you hired your first team member yeah, so that was a mobile phone software website, um, basically reselling software. Yep. Um, we had an implementation with a quite unique payment gateway advertising model. It was called Trial Pay back then. They sold to Visa. Um, and so we were able to capitalize on a market that nobody else had, had really capitalized on. So we grew it from zero to about 150,000 customers um, over about five or six years. Uh, it was a great first business and we just kind of killed it at SEO got pretty well a mix of luck and hard work as it always is had an amazing mentor Dom Glukowski who's now the CMO at um, a company called coin called coin jar um, he's still a good friend now um, but he he designed helped me design and architect the whole SEO of that site 
he actually used to work for Kogan and designed the SEO implementation of that. So I think that was a significant advantage that we had. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Did you say you sold that business to Visa? No, I did not sell. Um, we partnered with, with a company called TrialPay and TrialPay sold. But unfortunately, I do not have an equity stake in TrialPay. <laughs> oh, unfortunate. Well, it would have been a good learning experience, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, it was a learning experience, very profitable. Um, so great first business, no investors. Um, yeah, but then I decided to start Speedlancer based on my experience because I was hiring freelancers for absolutely everything. So I say I got it down to a 10-minute work week, spent a lot of money on on platforms like Odes, which became Upwork and uh, and Fiverr. And I just realized that real companies weren't leveraging freelancers like I was. And so that's when I embarked on starting my own freelancing marketplace, which we now see as the, what I see as a future of work play. Um, managed to attract some investors, like 500 startups in San Francisco. And here we are. Gotcha. So did you say it was first year of your uni uh, degree that you started Speedlancer? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really just a side project at that point. Um, I ended up meeting Dave McClure, who was the founder of 500 Startups. He was doing a trip uh, to Melbourne and I was interning at a startup event. Uh, I really wanted to get into the startup scene. I mean, I'd had the business perspective, um, but I wanted to get involved and, and, and really like, you know, do something that could be what I saw as impactful um, beyond just kind of a cash business or a lifestyle business. Um, so when I met Dave McClure, I did a pretty much totally unprepared 90 second pitch because everyone was going around the room pitching him. And I put my hand up. I said, can I go? Everyone said, yeah, sure. So I did mine. And uh, he came up to me afterwards. He said, how do I invest? And I'm like, uh, no, 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 I'm studying. I'm in uni. Like, can I join next year? It's too early. Like, you know, we don't even have a product yet. It's really just a side project. I was just hoping for pitch feedback, which he didn't even give me. I remember being somewhat offended <laughs> that he was giving everyone else feedback, but he sort of just listened to, attentively to mine and then moved on. And I was like, what is this? Um, but yeah, then, then, then we got into 500 and I was there two weeks later. Yeah, cool. And that was first year, second year, by second year uni, I was on an intermission and in San yeah. Francisco. And you still managed to finish your degree or the commerce degree at least. Yeah, I mean, I had to um, kind of, uh, play it the right way. I got, uh, I, I did a unit which was um, effectively letting me intern for myself. That counted for two subjects. I had a lecturer sign off on all my documents. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how I managed to get through somewhat unscathed. <laughs> through the <community. laughs> Sounds very savvy. So you've alluded to what uh, Speed Lancer does, but um, give us your elevator pitch. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, Speedlancer was brought out of the vision of um, kind of or, or out of my experience with hiring freelancers. So on the other platforms, they're effectively just remote job boards. You have to go through, put a post out, you know, select through dozens of people who apply, then interview them, pretty much arbitrarily choose one because you've never actually met them or had enough time to build rapport. They've got other clients as well. So you don't know where you stack in their priority list. You don't know how much to pay. Um, after you've onboarded them into your team, you know, you then try to make them a cultural fit. Good luck with that. You then have to manage them. You have to renegotiate with them, stay on top of their work. It's just a week's long process. Like even according to Upwork, it takes three days on average at the fastest for bids to even start coming in. Um, 
So just there's a huge gap here where to hire a freelancer, which is generally shorter term work, um, certainly because they're available normally for the short term, um, there's just a, yeah, a huge time barrier. Um, so what Speedlancer does is we are a freelance network. So we've got a curated pool of freelancers and we make them available on demand. So you put a job out, we have a concierge system, a Slack integration and everything. Um, so you communicate with our concierge via Slack. You say, hey, we've got this project. What do we do? And so then what we do is we either create what we call a task or a workflow surrounding that, uh, that requirement. So if it's a task, it means one person delivers it. And so let's say you need a blog post written. We assign a blog writer who's qualified automatically to that project. It spins up a Slack channel uh, and you're automatically directly connected with that freelancer. After you approve the task, the Slack channel shuts down, you rate it um, and that's it. And obviously there's revisions. We, we have uh, guarantees. If you're not happy with it, we replace the work. But what's really cool is um, we're, the, we're, we're still the only platform that does this is our workflow system. So what we're able to do is design an end-to-end -end workflow for a project or an ongoing campaign that effectively incorporates multiple freelancers together. So you might have a, a, a strategist, a planner, a researcher, a writer, a designer, an infographic designer, an illustrator, an animator, um, someone to do the syndication of a content campaign and so on. Um, or a more corporate example, uh, we've, we've got a client at the moment doing a kind of a... Um, a webinar campaign. So they record a webinar. They want it chopped up into a bunch of pieces of content, transcribe social media snippets, blog posts, infographic, and so on. Um, and that's an end-to-end -end automatically managed process, which is yeah, effectively what we do. So we're delivering, in short, a real kind of end-to-end -end impactful deliverable that happens to be delivered by freelancers. But the idea is the user shouldn't even really need to know it, at least not in the tr traditional sense. So basically where you normally go to an agency to get those kind of services, which require different um, expertise to be pulled together to deliver an outcome, you're pulling those different expertise from free, uh, freelancers or contractors and delivering that as, I guess, one freelancer bundle or speedlancer bundle. Exactly right. Yes. Um, but in addition to that, I would say half of our customers are agencies. Um, uh, and I think they use us because it streamlines their processes and they're still able to do the more strategic components for their clients. So I think everyone ends up a lot happier. You know, they don't even need to employ a full-time project manager to, to, to wrangle with Upwork. Um, you know, they've, they've got direct access to us in their Slack. Yeah. Sometimes they even white label us. So they add their customers to their Slack and the customer can communicate. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've had some agencies be totally transparent and others be not so transparent. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're just helping them deliver work. Yeah, gotcha. That's a cool concept and there's definitely a gap there. Some of those downfalls you mentioned with Upwork and freelancer.com and that sort of thing can be pretty frustrating. Um, so I like what you've done and it sounds like you were kind of scratching your own itch because you were aware of those sort of shortfalls of the other platforms and just put together something that would be the ideal solution for what you wanted. Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the timing was definitely off five years ago. Um, there was a huge stigma around freelancers and the word outsourcing. Nobody wanted to touch it. Um, so, I mean, we were the earliest stage company in 500 startups and kind of yeah, really struggled to get it off the ground back then. But I think now, and especially due to COVID actually, you know, I think everyone just 
understands work from home. Mm. When you say the word freelance to them at the moment, it's not frowned upon. It's seen as quite an entrepreneurial, maybe respected endeavor. Um, and these have all been very recent changes in the last few months. So yeah. that's been kind of cool to see. Yeah. And particularly for agencies, uh, it, it was kind of frowned upon a little bit if an agency used contractors or didn't use just internal staff, but it's just becoming so difficult in the agency space to maintain a team of full-time professionals and fully utilize them and uh, be cost efficient throughout that process. So I think a lot more agencies are realizing that and it's that uh, yeah, frowned upon nature is getting discarded, I guess. So I can see how that's leaning into assisting your business as well. So you got accepted into 500 startups. Um, what kind of capital does that give you access to? So just trying to get an idea of how much capital you needed to get Speedlancer off the ground. Yeah. So at the time it was 100,000 US. Uh, I don't recall the exact percentage they have. Probably it was for 7% of the company. Yeah. Um, but obviously with startups, you know, that's dilutable. So you raise the next round and, and so on. So we ended up raising around about 18 months after that. Then another one about 18 months after that. And then probably the most recent round a year or 18 months, probably 18 months or more after that. So with a few failed fundraising rounds in between, um, which I'm happy to talk about, but um, yeah, it's been quite the journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, (laughs) you always hear about the successes, but there's often better lessons to be learned in the failures. So if you could talk to those failed rounds, that'd be awesome. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important. And you're right, people don't really talk about it. Also, there's like the, the, the issues of um, just from the company perspective, you know, sharing failures when you have to paint the vision forward of success. But I think, you know, and I've, I've, I've fallen prey to that as well. Um, but now I'm lucky that, you know, enough time has passed. You know, I'm happy to just talk about it, which is sure. great. Um, so, yeah, the first round was uh, uh, the first failed round was a three million dollar round um us dollars and that was uh, i mean we had a significant lead investor this was after pitching about maybe a hundred different venture capital firms at least uh probably about two years into the business or 18 months into the business this uh fund did about eight sorry did about um six weeks of diligence on us so every day using the product talking to customers everything was fantastic uh so we got through with the first partner he was really championing us forward and while that was happening, obviously I was, you know, doing the startup thing or founder thing and pitching to others and, you know, trying to fill off the round, which we did. So the round was basically closed based on this lead that was going to be, I think it was one and a half million of the round, yeah. maybe a bit more. Um, so that would have been fantastic. It, definitely a tier one or tier two type VC fund, um, quite well, well respected. And yeah, the, the, the very last step, um, the partner, I won't say their names, but one of them said, um, you know, you just have to get my other partner uh, across the line, um, you know, but otherwise, you know, we're in, everything's good to go. So I get a call from this other partner and I still say it's probably the hardest question I've ever been asked um, by an investor. And he said, Adam, as, you know, venture capital fund name here, um, we have had, I think this is verbatim what he said a few years ago. We've had a, uh, a first look at, dozens of freelancing marketplaces over the last 10 years. We've said no to all of them. Why should we invest in yours? <laughs> That's a tough question. What did you answer? 
And I've never, I mean, as I said, that's the toughest question I think I've ever been asked, especially in the context after a six week, you know, diligence process, everything was just done. Uh, and I answered from a very technical perspective about, you know, why we are different. And I don't know if that's what he wanted to hear or if there was anything that he wanted to hear, but a few people have uh, said, oh, you should have answered it this way, which is interesting. And it's funny how human psychology works when <laughs> different people separately say different things. Yeah. Uh, and I think the answer that they wanted to hear was something along the lines of, yeah, you've said no to every other freelancing marketplace because of the issues that they have, you know, systemically, like as a freelancing marketplace. And this was before any of them had IPO'd. So yeah. Upwork and Fiverr had not IPO'd. Freelancer was pretty measly, to be honest. Um, so there was this huge stigma. And so they've said no to all of them. And I guess the answer should have been, well, we're building this from the ground up. We're making this mainstream. Um, and this one is different. Um, rather than taking a more defensive kind of product-related technical answer. So I wonder if that would have made any difference, but probably not. Yeah. So that yeah. was the first failed fundraising round. <laughs> gotcha. Have you ever thought about reaching out to him further down the track to see if you could get that feedback? Yeah. I mean, I don't like to burn bridges. So um, we've, we've maintained contact over the years, but um, I think the thesis, you know, changed. Also, they like to come in at a certain stage. Um, so it kind of just tapered off after that. I think, you know, once you get a no from a VC, it tends to be a, a proper no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So how many rounds, did, how many successful rounds did you say you've had? Uh, probably three or four. It depends how you count a lot of convertible notes in there. So some rolling ones. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And you mentioned there was about a hundred pitches in that, that particular failed round you mentioned. So how many pitches? Yeah, I've probably done about 250. At all least. up 250. Yeah. 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 So basically a pro at it now. <laughs> yeah. Pro at, um, yeah, I don't know if for, for all the right reasons, but <laughs> a pro at knowing, you know, when things work and when it doesn't work. But, you know, when you're tenacious, I've tried to give up. I mean, there were, there were years in here where every day I woke up, I wanted to give up on the idea. Some yeah. days where I woke up and I did give up on the idea. And I was like, okay, I'm starting something else. But then my train of thought went, okay, I need Speedlands to help me launch this. And it just reeled me back. Yeah, it makes so, sense. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have that op option? I mean, once you've got a couple of rounds of funding under your belt, obviously you've got a decent amount of investment. There's people who are engaged with it. Is it an option to just pull out? Like, did you have that option? Well, yeah, when you run out of money and no one's giving you more yeses or more cash than you're... I don't know if I can swear, but you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, gotcha. And so when you have no cash and you're not drawing an income and to quote, um, wasn't Paul Graham, Sam, Sam Altman from YC, you know, when you've uh, run out of cash and or run out of ideas, that's generally when startups fail. At the end of the road, yeah. Have you got a, um, a vision or a, a sort of a break-even point that's on the radar or is it still a fair way away? Well, break-even is a silly kind of measure because, I mean, as much as I like it, it's, it's important for a founder to be aware of, but it's not really a stat that I can say like, yeah, we break even and everyone goes, wow, that's a significant business you have. Mm. You can break even at $1,000 a month if you're frugal or 100000 a month. Yeah. Um, 
you can be profitable at any level or you could be doing a hundred grand a month or 200 grand a month and be losing a bunch of money. So um, yeah, I mean, break even, I think it's important to step through break even points. That's what I like to tell investors that they go, what runway? And I always give them the contrarian answer. Well, you know, I agree with you that these funds are to be spent, you know, we're supposed to burn cash here. And the correct answer is always, you know, somebody pick pick a random number between 12 and 18 months and they nod and that's what they want to hear. But I actually preface it by saying, yeah, you know, 12 to 18 months runway, but we like to step through break even points. So grow our revenue, grow expenses, grow our revenue, grow expenses. We're a services platform. So that's what we should be doing. Sure. So it's basically a stepped process almost in line with the rounds. It sounds like, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you explain the monetization model? I mean, obviously it's a service business, but I'm guessing there's some additional complexity in there, particularly with the workflows. I mean, you look at Upwork and that's pretty simple. Like they take a percentage of the, um, the fee that you pay the contract or the freelancer. Um, and then there's some additional revenue they generate through memberships and that kind of thing. How does it look for you guys? Yeah. I mean, we're kind of, more simple, at least from a customer perspective, I think um, they pay us for a workflow up front and we manage the rest. Um, so we determine how much each freelancer requires to be paid. We, we speak with them a lot um, and figure out kind of that price. And then we take a kind of fluctuating margin that hopefully operates around some sort of average that we're aiming for on the back end. Um, so in that sense, I mean, yeah, it, it, it really depends. The customer is getting what they want because it's a, it's a fixed price. They're getting an ongoing package. They don't really have to worry about anything else. And then we take that risk on that on the other end with a margin yeah. in between. Even though you, you're kind of a marketplace, you, you're, you're kind of straddling the line, aren't you? Because you're a marketplace, but it's also a service because you've got that level of customization. How have you gone about systemizing that? Because the challenge for most agencies is obviously... Um, putting systems in place to manage those workflows to end up with outcomes or deliverables. Um, for you guys, it sounds like it could get kind of complex. Like if someone asks, even if it's something as simple as, I don't know, uh, setting up a webinar series, like you mentioned before, there's a number of moving parts in that. So how, is, how have you gone with, I guess, recruiting the right talent and then systemizing it so you can deliver on those things efficiently? Yeah, so you mentioned recruiting. So from our perspective, we try to have the the talent in like funnels or buckets, right? So we've got writers, designers, animators, video editors, front-end web developers, back-end web developers, whatever. And so we have, first of all, a task routing system. So if we need a writer for a task, we go out and we find the right person. So that's the first step. And we've eliminated the bidding and back and forth choosing process. That's fairly automated. From there, I call that the liquid task system that we have. No other marketplace even has something as streamlined as that to start with. Then we can start bundling things together. So that's where we built a custom built workflow management system that actually routes tasks to those freelancers in a certain order. So we're able to pick from a designer, a writer, a developer, you know, um, a video editor um, and start compiling them together with handoffs from one to the next. We, we tell the freelancers what inputs they're going to get and what outputs are expected uh, corresponding to the next step in the workflow. It also manages permissions. So only certain freelancers are able to access the deliverables from certain other freelancers. Uh, so yes, it's incredibly complex and yes, that's how we generate our value, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. 
This episode of Sticky Beak is brought to you by Digital Deluxe. If you're sick of digital agencies that overpromise and underdeliver, you need to speak to Digital Deluxe. We can't guarantee miracles, but we can guarantee great service and a logical ROI-focused approach. Visit www.digitaldeluxe.com.au forward slash stickybeak to access our special offer for Sticky Beak listeners. I guess another challenge would be um, staying on top of putting enough work out because the quality of what the Speedlancer clients receive, I guess, is dependent on the quality of the freelancers that you guys are selecting for workflows or tasks. Um, I guess it must be a challenge to make sure you're feeding them enough work to keep them happy and also not feeding them too much work so that they're not available. Is How do you manage that part of the complexity? Yeah, I mean... So just from a higher level, when I started Speedlancer, I thought that um, the freelancer side would be a lot more complicated than the demand side. Um, there's actually a really good article on this by the Harvard Business School, sorry, Harvard Business Review um, called Two-Sided Markets, which I recommend to any marketplace founder. It talks about the chicken and egg, egg problem. Um, and it turns out, and you know, if, if, had I read that, I would have predicted that the demand side would be harder because it's the money side. So where are you getting money from? Anyone who you're paying invariably is easier, right? So it's just a question of, are they being paid enough? Um, so, so that's the question. So how are we motivating these people? Well, we haven't really needed to. We've got some incredible, you know, people. We've had a writer from Oprah Winfrey's network, BBC comedy writers, um, uh, head uh, editors from Australian newspapers, um, uh, a developer writer was on board with this week. Um, just like kind of incredible various types of of talent in general um and the reason i think they come to us and keep coming to us is because we've really hit the nail on the head of um being a gap filler type platform so just like uber they can turn us on turn us off when they want us and when they don't want us um they can still prioritize uh their existing clients still we encourage them to go get those but in between the work we've got you know tasks that take an hour two hours through to tasks that take three or four days. And these all slot in nicely um, depending on their other workloads. So I think we've got quite a unique model in in that regard. Um, And that tends to be appreciated by the freelancers. Gotcha. How big is the Speedlancer team as in like full-time members? So we're pretty lean. I mean, we use our freelancers for pretty much everything. Um, It's about four or five of us, depending on how you count at the moment. And then with the freelancers, I mean, we've got SEO, we've got video editors, we've got content writers, um, we've had contractors for basically everything, uh, front-end web developers. So we're fortunate that we don't need a hire for all of our positions. Uh, and our freelancers tend to look after us too, which is really nice. We don't even ask for that, but um, you know, we give them work and they like to feel part of it. Uh, so yeah, it's one of our advantages, I would say. Yep. From a, a user perspective, what kind of numbers are you hitting? Uh, like, I guess it's you, you'd have different metrics. I'm not sure what the most important one for you is. Is it like number of users active per month? Is it um, tasks activated, workflows purchased? What's the yeah? Metric? So there's a few different metrics that I'd say are important specifically for us. Um, well, one is obviously revenue. Um, two, I would say is like number of clients because we've switched. Uh, to a more recurring model over the last few years and that's actually made it easier to sell because it means we're actually hitting a proper pain point for customers 
they're willing to sign up to have something ongoing solved for them, um, whether they're agencies or, or direct businesses purchasing direct workflows from us. Um, and I think the, the last one is like number of tasks delivered. And I think that's important because even a workflow is broken down into tasks. So we need to be monitoring you know, number of tasks, number of freelancers who are actively picking up those tasks. Um, so we monitor all those things. We've delivered, I think over 8,000 tasks successfully to date with a 97% um, 97% of ratings being a four out of five or above. So we're yep. pretty proud of that. Yeah. 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 That's quite impressive. I'm sure a lot of agencies would be happy with delivering that many projects and having that kind of rating on every single project. I mean, the projects can can range in size, yeah. you know, from, you know, $50 on the, on the small end to thousands of dollars, but you know, it depends on, on the, on the project. Yeah. Yeah. What's the largest single project that you've had come through the platform? We've had really large like workflows. Yeah. Um, so those range in the many thousands of dollars. Um, but an individual task, oh, I don't want to speculate, but thousands of dollars too. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Anything more than like five, 10,000, we break up into multiple tasks. Is, yeah. That's kind of our value. It's very rare you'd want one freelancer to spend one task and spend thousands of dollars on it. Unless it's like, you know, corporate strategy, which we haven't really elected to go into just yet. But, you know, I could see that being like a, you know, you need an MBA to solve this problem. Yeah. Um, that might be a five, $10,000 task. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And most of the tasks, uh, do you have set rates for them? So for people who haven't used the platform before, um, are there set rates for the task or do they enter the details of the task and get a customized price for it? How does that work? Yeah. So we have a, I guess, um, a, I'm going to call it like a repository of different products on our backends. We productize everything. I would say at the moment we've got pre-existing SKUs for 90% of things you could ask for. Um, or we tweak things very slightly and add it as a skew in our platform. So for example, we never used to do animation videos, um, but someone came on board and said, Hey, do you do animations? And we said, well, you know, we've got really talented designers. We've got musicians, we've got script writers. Um, we've got some, we've got people who can do like illustrations and storyboarding, not in this order, but you know, animators, video editors, even musicians, someone who can do sound effects. So we were like, um, yes, will you be our guinea pig? Yeah. <laughs> and so they paid us. We did a full case study on them. Uh, and from then on, you know, we do animations. Um, so that's kind of our process for, for constructing. Gotcha. Our workflows. Uh, you mentioned before there was a few mornings where you woke up and kind of wanted to throw in the towel. Um, and maybe that ties into this question around, um, has the business experienced any near-death moments? Yeah, I'd say three pivotal near-death, one total death and with a resuscitation involved. Right. <laughs> Maybe tell us about the total death and resuscitation. Yeah. So that was last year. That was like the second big fundraising round that collapsed. Um, I had onboarded a co-founder that a uh, lead VC had recommended. Um, he was this incredible person, um, uh, you know, had worked in the NSA, like Edward Snowden style, um, had a computer science degree from West Point Military Academy, Harvard Business School, MBA, Worked in Bridgewater Capital, um, McKinsey, was deployed to Iraq for years, founded a venture capital fund, just like everything you could want in one person <laughs> um, and was really philosophically aligned with what we do. 
which is a really cool thing. Um, it was pretty fantastic, but um, I got a call 24 hours prior to the funds due to being wired. We had all our previous investors lined up wanting to go in like above their pro-riders. Um, and it was actually on my birthday last year. <laughs> uh, I got a call, yeah, from from that co-founder and he basically said he wasn't, he wasn't feeling it anymore, um, which was disappointing, but there was nothing I could do to change his mind. Uh, and he didn't want to screw over investors if he wasn't in the right mindset. Uh, so the lead investor ended up pulling out of their term sheet, which was pretty, I'm gonna say unreal <laughs> to yeah. have experienced and lived through. Uh, and from there, I mean, I timed it perfectly. A week later, we just ran out of cash. I got a call from Silicon Valley Bank saying you're in overdraft. And I said, well, can you give me a week extension? You know, give me a week. And they're like, no, we can't. So I think uh, I might've wired the company some cash to cover that. Um, and then a week after that, we actually got our um, grant approved from the, from the Australian government. Yep. Uh, and three days after that, we had funds wired. And that was enough to keep the lights on for another three months, I think. Yep. Um, and from there, I mean, we were fortunate enough to close or rescue some of those investors who were really interested. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was just a absolutely wild experience. Yeah, it must have been a tough time. Where what was your headspace like when I mean getting that call must have been an absolute blood drainer. Um, did the co-founder or proposed co-founder did he give any specific reasons or did it make sense not really yeah no opportunity to resolve it either which was disappointing he um you know he said he's got a history of pulling out of things when they become serious um didn't really give me any personal feedback or room to improve and mm -hmm. those sorts of things so that was kind of the most difficult part of it all um i like to be quite transparent and upfront about feelings but that was a learning not everyone is like that mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, he and I'd been working together for maybe five months, the fundraising round, I've been really working hard on it for six months. So to see it all just collapse was pretty devastating, but it also wasn't the first time it had happened. And I think that's the interesting thing about resilience. When you fail, you actually increase your, your baseline tolerance. Nothing from then on, like things don't really come close. You know, and if they do, you've actually got something to fall back on. So definitely character building personally for the startup. Um, I mean, I was, that was another point I was like considering giving up, but that actually didn't last too long because I think I wasn't in the mindset to just throw in the towel after one person threw in the towel. You know, I'd been running the business for years. And so it just didn't make sense to me to even really consider giving up even when we did run out of cash, it was like, it felt like an inevitability at that point that we continue. Yeah. That's a really good point around the failure tolerance. Um, it definitely seems to be a common theme that a lot of successful entrepreneurs had some sort of sales experience or something similar earlier in their career where they endured a lot of rejection. And that um, rejection seems to set them up really well because they have a much higher tolerance for A, more rejection, B, more failure. And it's, as you keep hearing in every self-help book you'll ever read, that the more failures you can have, the faster you learn and faster you'll find Yeah, it is there. interesting. I mean, a couple of quotes resonate. So there's Elon Musk who says, um, you know, I, I think it was him that you don't really learn from failures. You learn much more from your successes. <laughs> um, 
you know, I actually agree. You don't want to aim to fail at anything. Why do that to yourself? Um, but obviously, you know, you do become more resilient from failure. That's kind of that. But I don't know if that brings you closer to the success that you're aiming for. Your personal metrics might change. You know, what does success mean to you and all that philosophical importance slash nonsense, <laughs> yeah. depending on how deep you go with it. Um, yeah. And what was the other quote? I don't remember exactly, but it'll come back to me. Yeah. What are the future plans for Speedlancer? So you've been through some um, scary moments, but what's, what's the future look like? Have you got any exciting plans? Yeah, we're actually in a good place right now, um, which is, which is really good. Um, we kind of have a new sales model, kind of B2B focused, which is really cool. Generating leads predictably, I would say. Um, so that's exciting kind of gearing up our sales efforts to, really expand kind of all of our metrics and start growing them week on week. Um, like the old 500 startups days, although back then we were selling $50 products and now we're selling $20,000 packages yeah. <laughs> or more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess the plans are just keep going up in terms of sales size, but also up in terms of volume um, yeah. and across different verticals. So uh, I guess the reason I, I chose to raise for speed Lancer was because uh, and this is when I feel like companies should raise is with companies that, you know, you can grow into so many different verticals that you're never going to run out of growth opportunity. And I don't know if I'd recommend that for a lot of companies, but like think of Amazon, you know, they're able to go into so many different verticals, as many as they, as they want started off with books and it's important to create a niche. But I think if you're not going to run out of, uh, of opportunities in terms to grow, you're not going to, you know, no market size is going to hold you back then it might make sense to raise. So yeah, we're going for the kill here. Yeah. Always have. Um, but also like, you know, I've become content with like just seeing the way that we impact our freelancers um, on a very personal level, whether it's one life or 500 lives or 5 million, you know, it's always exciting to be able to see that we're kind of democratizing the way that people access work. Yeah, gotcha. What do you do outside of work to keep your sanity in check, Adam? I go for a lot of walks, something I quite enjoy. Uh, I do gym four days a week. Yoga is really good. Um, I was actually saying to my friend yesterday, we went to yoga. Um, I, I don't feel it's the best exercise. Don't feel it's the best meditation. Don't feel it's the best stretch. But for some reason, I keep coming back to it because at the end of it, I feel like I've been on a holiday. <laughs> I feel like a new person. Um, so that's something I, I really enjoy. I do that at least once a week. Um, otherwise, just socializing. I'm kind of the more social type. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you engage in any kind of ongoing learning? So whether it's courses, reading books, podcasts, what sort of thing do you like to do? I'd say historically for me, I have sought learnings on specific topics when I have them. So be that a personal development thing or a relationship thing or a business thing or a sales thing um i tend to go deep into a topic um yeah i don't really read generally uh or without a purpose it's not something i really enjoy personally um i mean it's great to do but i don't have the patience for that <laughs> yeah gotcha any uh top recommendations for books or things that you've read recently uh, topic that's a better question that you've uh, delved into 
Yeah, I mean, I've been a bit eclectic lately, sort of personal development stuff. Um, one of our investors recommended an economics book um, for this, this economist wrote it for his daughter um, about, about the uh, emergence of capitalism. So I think that's been really interesting. I can find the name, but also, you know, just, just learning about where the economy is heading in, you know, in a COVID related world has been quite interesting. And I mean, you could go pretty deep. So the book is called um, um, Talking to My Daughter, A Brief History of Capitalism by Yanis Varoufakis, V-A-R-O-U-F-A-K-I-S. Okay. Um, yeah, so that one's been really good. Cool. Check it out. What's the number one piece of advice you'd give to someone who's thinking about starting or is in the early stages of starting a business? Think about the reasons you want to do it. Uh, luckily, I think that um, we've somewhat passed the startup generation a little bit. Uh, four or five years ago, everyone wanted to start a startup, and I think now people are a bit more realistic about it. Um, you know, it's just uh, you have to. It, for me, my sister's an incredible artist, like she paints. And seeing her do that highlighted to me that perhaps business is my creativity. I can't paint, I can't do music or anything like that, but um, I think there is an art of business. And I think in order to do it, I'm not saying, you know, people who aren't totally enthralled by it can't succeed. Um, but I think that for me, it's an obsession. Um, for me, since the age of 11, I've just been doing startups. And so one idea has led to another um, and it's a mixture of anxiety and creativity that, that, that has driven me. And now, you know, steering more to the creative lens of, of passion. Uh, so I think, yeah, just finding your impetus, finding the right reasons. Is it a mission that you want to solve? Is it to rectify your bank balance? And this will guide what type of company, if you're looking to, you know, increase your bank balance, perhaps start a side hustle, perhaps don't raise money. These are all paths. If you're doing financially well and you've got some footing, maybe go for the moon, maybe raise some capital if the business idea demands it. So yeah, I'd say that's the broad advice. You know, Simon Sinek, start with the why. Gotcha. All right, before we look to wrap up, we have a little custom segment where we spin the wheel, Adam. So I'm just gonna share my screen with you so you can view the wheel. Whatever we land on will lead to a interesting question. So I'll cool. get the wheel spinning. Horse or duck? All right. So this question is, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? And an explanation to go with it. Ooh, would I rather fight them? Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? Yeah. Ooh, I'd say 100 duck-sized horses would be more fun. Um, <laughs> Kind of, I'm, I'm thinking uh, Kill Bill style, you know, one after the other. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the the horse-sized duck would be a bit more of a better use of my boxing. So we'll go with that one. Got it, got it. That's the, we've had 100% answers for that option so far. Uh, but you're the first one to talk about the fun aspect of the 100 duck-sized <laughs> horses. So I like it. Alrighty. Well, thanks a lot for sharing us, uh, sharing your story with us today, Adam. It's been great. Um, is there anywhere you would direct people to either find Speedlancer or find yourself online? Yeah, so speedlancer.com. 
Um, and you can find me probably best on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, so my name is Adam Stone. I'm at Stone Adam on Twitter as well. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Adam, and all the best with Speed Lancer in the future. Cheers. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Sticky Beak. If you've got any feedback or suggestions for guests or topics you'd like us to cover, just send it through to info at stickybeak.com.au.